I think Jonathan's already made mention of the men's retreat and the good things that were going on there. It was really a, a good time. And um, we are wrestling with stuff. We wrestle with stuff because things confront us all the time. And that's not going to change for a while, I don't think. In fact, I'm guessing that it will be forever that we continue to have to wrestle with things and, uh, and sort those through. And there's, we're even going to hear some of that this morning. Some of you know the name Botham Jean, okay? Does that name mean anything to anybody? Botham Jean? Most, oh, not many hands. Few, okay? If you've been watching the news, and especially the U.S. news, uh, you have seen about a court case that's t- taken place recently in the United States. Uh, you might be familiar with this. About a year ago or so, a year and a half ago, a female uh, Dallas police officer went into an apartment that she thought was her own, apparently. And there are a lot of things that are kind of apparently about this. She went into an apartment that she thought was her own, and when she opened the door, she saw a figure inside the room in her apartment. She pulled her revolver, and I don't know all the facts in terms of what actually happened, but she ended up shooting what she thought was an intruder and killing him. Later, of course, very quickly, I'm sure, for her, she discovered that it was, in fact, not her apartment, that she had gone into the wrong apartment, and that she had killed an individual who was actually in his own home. Uh, He was black, she was white, and you can imagine all the ramifications of all that, the repercussions that came out of it, and there have been quite a bit of uproar uh, coming out of all of that. One thing that's interesting for those of us who are in Churches of Christ is that Botham Jean was a graduate of Harding University. Uh, Some of you went to Harding. Uh, Botham was a a song leader within the Churches of Christ in the Dallas area, and there's actually a, a, a video of him leading singing for the Church of Christ that he was a part of. Uh, and he, like, he was a vibrant, enthusiastic, life-filled, Christ-filled individual. And so it was, uh, it was tragic that, that his life ended as quickly as it did. There were, you know, uh, very quickly all kinds of, of things that came out of, uh, of this in terms of race relations and conflict and all of that. But one of the things that happened in the last few days, if you've seen this on the news, is that at one point near the end of her trial, when she was convicted and then eventually given 10 years for what she had done, his brother, who was 18 years old, was on the witness stand. And as the trial closes, he turns to the judge, kind of looks over his shoulder and and turns to the judge, and after having said, if I have the events right, that he forgives her, like he said, I forgive you. And the reason he said that is because he says, my brother would want me to forgive you. And so he turns and says to the judge, can I give her a hug? And the judge says yes. And so he gets down out of the witness box and goes down onto the floor, and she gets up from her seat, and she runs across the courtroom and embraces him. It is a poignant moment. Now, it's interesting because there has been so much controversy then that has arisen about that moment because there are many people who said, wait a minute, how is it that this woman, this police officer who's white, who commits this atrocity, is being so easily forgiven? Like, it isn't appropriate, it's not right for for there to be this kind of sudden forgiveness. And even the judge, who is black, ends up giving her her Bible and goes to the defendant 
and said, I can't remember all the words that she said, but, but they were grace-filled words. And of course, there were many people who were very upset about that and felt like it was totally inappropriate for the judge uh, to say those kinds of things and to express that kind of emotion. I, well, and, and I'm, I'm not the judge, so I, I can't evaluate all, all of those things, but I do think it's a fascinating occurrence. And I'm, I'm proud. I'm pleased. Like maybe, maybe there were errors that were made in the midst of all that and those decisions, but I'm pleased that somehow somebody in the churches of Christ decided that it was appropriate to offer grace, even to a murderer, and in this case, to someone who had killed his brother. That's amazing, if you think about it. And somewhere in the midst of that, there's a great deal of grace and forgiveness, and I appreciate that. Well, this heads in a completely different direction, but I wanted to say that this morning. The movie Jerry Maguire. There are three lines that come out of Jerry Maguire that are pretty famous. One of those is, show me the money. Show me the money, Jerry. And that became, for a while at least, kind of a prominent saying. Another line is, and all of those romantics in the world and in this room are going to know this line, you had me at hello. You had me at hello. There wasn't anything else I needed. I was in love with you at that moment. So that became a famous line out of that movie as well. And then there was this one. You complete me is the line that comes out of that movie as well. And the idea is that if I can be in relationship with you because of who you are, something is fulfilled in my life. And the fact is that this kind of parallels the contemporary North American conception of what marriage is supposed to be. You complete me. And we think that marriage is all about that. We find this one person in life who fulfills us, and we would say is our soulmate. Now, the fact is, I'm not sure that the notion of soulmates and that kind of you-complete-me notion is really at the heart of the biblical picture of marriage. There are a lot of people who've been married for a long time who would say that it's not. I don't want to burst anybody's romantic bubble, but we don't constantly say about our spouses, you-complete-me. Sometimes we say, would you please go away for a while? Well, we don't have the opportunity this morning to read all the verses from 1 Corinthians 7, which are going to talk a little bit about that kind of thing, uh, but we have occasion to talk about some. And, and it's interesting, the title of this lesson, and it's actually not about marriage, Jonathan did that a couple of weeks ago, this one is actually about singlehood. And the title of the lesson, the title on my piece of paper this morning is God absolutely loves unmarried Christians. Because 1 Corinthians 7 talks a lot about what it means to be unmarried rather than married. And for those especially of you who are single, there are some things in 1 Corinthians 7 that really, I think, will, I'd like to think they would speak to your lives. 
that they would say something to you because Paul himself, an unmarried Christian, has some things to say. So I'd like you to turn to, it's, in, it's on page 809, I think, under the, in the Bibles underneath the seats. But I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I want to read some passages with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, please turn there because I'm going to read a bunch of scripture and I want you to really follow along with me and, and me just not read this to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'm going to start with verses 1 through 9. And I had to kind of cherry pick here. I can't read the whole chapter or anything. Uh, it's too long, but, I, but I, ha- I have some verses I want to read. So for example, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1. And Paul has been written to by this church. They've got some things that are on their hearts and and he wants to address the things that they've written to him about. So he says, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay, that's kind of interesting. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Don't deprive each other, uh, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. That's interesting. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God, One has this gift, another has that. And it's interesting the way Paul thinks of marriage here. Not at all like you complete me. And not at all even like sex is something that's just this wonderful event that we think of as two people coming together and sharing this blessed moment in the Lord. Instead, Paul kind of, well, okay, get married because, well, you're going to burn with passion if you don't. Not exactly the romantic view that we think of when we think of marriage. Well, he continues on. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say. So now he's talking to the unmarried and the widows, who of course are not married. It is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, this is just interesting that Paul says, get married, but (laughs) if you have to is kind of what he says. And again, that's not exactly what we think of when we think of the lofty, beautiful view of marriage that's depicted in the Bible. Now, as I say that, one of you is no doubt thinking to yourself, well, doesn't the Bible also say it's not good for a man to be alone? Isn't there something in the Bible that's really positive about marriage and that relationship? And of course there is. But here for a moment... Paul is addressing not so much marriage as he is the single. And those who are unmarried, widowed, wondering whether or not they should stay in this state. And so Paul has some things to say to them. Now look at verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Now, up above, Paul had kind of expressed an opinion. This is the way I look at it. I wish you could all be as I am. That would be my choice. Here, he actually says, there's a rule I want to lay down in all the churches. As a believer, in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, they should stay in that. Interesting. Now, look at verse 25, and I'm going to read quite a section here. Now about virgins, okay, the unmarried virgins. 
I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. So a virgin, remain as you are. Are you pledged to a woman? Don't seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. So if you're betrothed, if you're engaged, you're going to get married, go ahead. But if you're not, stay as you are. Don't leave it. He says, don't look for a wife. But if you, do not, if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. Wow, Paul. <laughs> what a lofty view of marriage you have. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if they were not theirs to keep. As if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. We start to get a picture where, from where Paul's kind of coming from. Paul is thinking that the things of this world maybe aren't near as important as we think they are, and because of that, we need to be focusing on the things above. Think about God. In fact, think about God so seriously that it actually impacts the question of whether or not you're going to get married. Maybe I won't get married because I'm actually thinking about my commitment to Christ and trying to preserve myself and my devotion, my life specifically, for the Lord. Interesting. Verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. Yeah, there's a lot of things I could say there, but I'll just let that go. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world. How can she please her husband? I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way and undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, I think all of that is relatively clear. That there is, in fact, on Paul's heart and mind, a concern that people who are married and are going to get married, people who think about marriage all the time, maybe have their hearts, what Paul says, are divided. And so he's clear throughout this passage that as far as he's concerned, it is actually best for many, although not all, to remain unmarried. Now, this isn't what we usually hear, folks. Usually when we talk in the church, we talk about the beauty of marriage. We talk about the the kind of vision that God has for the Christian family. And we have in our minds this beautiful picture of, I mean, how many of you ladies, once you have a daughter, you think one of these days she's going to grow up and she's going to get married. And we make plans for this. We have visions for this. Little girls grow up thinking that this is the preeminent moment of their lives, their wedding day. And Paul seems to, at least at some level, be calling into question whether or not our hearts are divided when we constantly are thinking about that, when that becomes the default for our lives, when something else perhaps should be the default for our lives in all kinds of circumstances, and that default being, of course, our devotion specifically to Christ. 
Look at this passage. This comes at the end of the chapter or at, at the end of this section. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right. We've already said that. But he who does not marry her does better. That's interesting. Again, we don't normally think in these terms. That's pretty startling language. Somebody's probably thinking, did you really read that in public? Did you have the guts to say that to a bunch of married people? That maybe it is better? And I'm not, I don't really care whether I'm saying it to married people or not. I am caring whether or not I say it to single people. Because single people so often feel in the church as though they are second-class citizens. The vision of the church is that we all grow up and we get married and we have beautiful Christian families. And what does that do to the person who is not married? Well, I think that Paul actually says some wonderful things about those who are not married. He talks about how each of us is gifted in different ways. He implies that singlehood is a gift. Being married is a gift as well. Some of you are gifted in this way. Some of you are gifted in this way, Paul says. Stay as you are. In verse 17 and following, he talks about being called to Christ and remaining in those circumstances because that's what God desires for you. And so he says this, or at least this is my comment. At the very least, Paul is saying that the call to marriage is not for everyone. And that it should not be our automatic default so that we think this is what we should all do. And if we don't do this, there's something wrong with us. Quite the contrary, I would say. In fact, I would say that the choice to get married could be looked at like this. The grounds on which a single Christian should focus on getting married is as if he or she is convinced that they will actually serve the Lord better if married than not. And so it's not just our default. I think that young people, as they grow up and are asking this question, should I get married? Should I not get married? Who am I going to marry? need to ask this question. Is getting married going to enable me to be the servant of Christ that I long for? to be. That needs to be the default. What does God want from me in my life? How can I serve God best? How can I completely give myself to Him? And so Paul, the apostle, clear that an unmarried lifestyle may well be the lifestyle that allows you to serve God best. Unhindered devotion to God. And devotion to God is a priority. That's what he wants more than anything else. And so we should think seriously about whether or not God may be calling us, even to a single lifestyle, for the cause of Christ. Now, does that bring challenges? Of course it does. Big ones in some cases. And at least one Paul keeps dealing with in this chapter. He keeps saying, well, if if this is a problem for you, especially when it comes to your sexuality, then get married. Don't hesitate. If you're betrothed, don't feel like you you have to get out of that. Go ahead and stay in that relationship. But if anything, God wants as our priority our devotion to Him. 
And in fact, I would say that for the Christian single who makes that decision, the beauty of that decision is that it's God who then becomes, in some sense, for that person, their spouse. There's a sense in which the peace and the joy of relationship that a person longs for actually comes to the single person because they are ultimately related to God. So I would say this, God wants to be the one with whom we have the relationship that completes us. I think that's the case. Now, the trick is, or the truth is, that's actually the case for the married person too. We as married people might say, you complete me. And I might say, isn't there something perhaps a little bit idolatrous in that? When God is calling us actually to be fully devoted to Him. And so both single person and married person ultimately are called by God. And I think Paul is making this direct call for us to be completely devoted to Him, sold out to Him, recognizing that the only thing that will ever complete us is our relationship with Him and not the relationship that we have with some other person. Marriage can be beautiful. It can be wonderful. There is a reason why God said it's not good for man to be alone. But ultimately, it's our relationship with Christ that needs to fulfill us. And I would say that this is a perfect application of that principle, applying that to the single person. Now, let me make another specific application of all of this. And this is where the preacher gets himself in big trouble. Okay, The preacher starts saying things, and then afterwards, he's roasted at lunch, and people are saying he would have been better off just keeping his mouth shut. Okay? Paul is really clear that living the life of a single Christian is actually preferable to those who find themselves single and serving Jesus. Like, I think that God wants us to just serve him. He wants that to be our priority. But I think there might be a direct application of this when it comes to same-sex attraction among those who are Christians. One of the main arguments that people make in favor of homosexuality is that it's simply not fair for God to put a limitation on the potential relationships that those people could have. That those who are same-sex attracted shouldn't be told by the church, homosexuality is wrong, you can't carry on with a homosexual monogamous relationship. Because it keeps those people from being able to achieve that monogamous relationship. Well, part of me wonders if in this case, those who are Christian singles. And the answer to the Christian single is, God completes you. And so I wonder if it's not a good thing if those who are same-sex attracted would view their disposition as something that, like the Christian single, ultimately needs to be answered by the one who completes us. 
and that they are in fact called to live a kind of lifestyle in which they're so devoted to God, so giving themselves to God, that this becomes the right, fulfilling, monogamous kind of relationship that brings them peace and joy and satisfaction and fullness. The heterosexual Christian who is single is called to that kind of relationship. God says to the heterosexual single, stay unmarried and devote yourself completely to me and I will be the one who fulfills you. God wants to meet the relational need. And I just wonder, is this not the case with the same-sex attracted Christian single as well? We are saying, I'm saying, that single Christian heterosexuals make a mistake in being debilitated by their singleness, acting like life is over because I wasn't married. And I would wonder if the same thing isn't true of those who are same-sex attracted. Choosing singleness and celibacy when you're the same-sex attracted is not some huge disadvantage. Any more than it is, it would seem to me, for the Christian single. You would say, well, the Christian single maybe has some kind of outlet, some kind of opportunity. Well, actually, they don't. If they're called by God to be single and singly, completely devoted to Christ, and they give themselves completely to Him, there's no human outlet for that monogamous relationship for them any more than there is for the same-sex attracted person. And so singleness for the heterosexual is some kind of legitimate alternative, Paul says, in terms of the call. It's an opportunity for relationship with God and to be fulfilled. And I'm just wondering if the same thing isn't true for same-sex relationships. He calls us to Him first, to do His will first, to love and joy and peace and faithfulness and oneness and satisfaction and accomplishment and contentment and oneness in spirit, truly fulfilling relationship happens with Him first. And that should be the case for the married person. That should be the case for the single person. That should be the case for the same-sex person. Same-sex attracted person, God wants to be the one who completes us. In fact, is the only one who can truly complete us. Again, if we think that our marriage partner is going to be the one who completes us as opposed to God, I think that kind of heads in the direction of idolatry and certainly in the direction of fruitlessness because it's not going to happen. God is the one who puts himself in the position of being able to fulfill our lives. All else in our lives needs to work toward allowing God to be the best and the one who completes us. And I would say that that's not settling. That's not just to settle. That's a calling. That's a place where God is saying to us, go there. Be in relationship with me. Allow me to fulfill your life. I think that's what he wants us to do. And so I'm hoping that for all of us, married, 
single, same-sex attracted. We all find ourselves in that sense in the same boat of recognizing that it's only in the Lord that we find ultimate completion and fulfillment. And it allows us to see ourselves in a completely different light. We don't have some people who are made choices that leave them completely fulfilled and other people not. Instead, we can all make choices that put us before him fulfilled. And it is, in fact, for all of us, the same choice. The choice of allowing God to be that one who fulfills us in a beautiful, fulfilling fulfilling relationship. Let's pray. Uh, God, my heart sometimes aches for single people around me who long to be married. My heart aches for those who are same-sex attracted. They can't find uh, that fulfilling relationship and still be in line with your will. And God, we don't want either one to stay there. We don't want either one to remain in this position of dissatisfaction. And God, there are married people who find themselves just as dissatisfied in their marriages. And that's because ultimately, Lord, we need to be seeking you. And so I pray for all of those relationships that you would put us in a position where we would long to know you, long to be one with you, long to be connected to you, long to have you absolutely fulfill us. And I thank you, God, for loving uh, single Christians so much that you want to be in relationship with them and fulfill their lives. I'm thankful for the same when it comes to those who are same-sex attracted, that you long to be the fulfillment for them. Help us all to head in that direction, we pray, through Jesus. Amen.